I'm going to open up with prayer here this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and look at your great promises that you are a God who is faithful to protect the messianic promises. And Lord, that one day you will come and establish your kingdom and glory and you will throw down all of your enemies and you will reign in justice and righteousness and you will beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. And Lord, we long for that day. So, Lord, give us great comfort through your word as we open it up and give us clarity as to what it says. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I just want to give a little review. I know every time we get into Revelation or into the book of Acts, it's been a couple weeks. And let me just remind you where we are. Recall that we have three different sets of judgments. We have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. Well, we are in the position now in Revelation where all that is left are the seven bowl judgments. Those are the final judgments that will be open prior to Christ's coming. And what John is doing here in Revelation 12 is he is giving us an interlude again where he explains further information that we have to know to understand what is going on within the 70th week of Daniel. And so one of the things that John is showing us here in Revelation 12 is that there has always been a battle in which Satan has tried to wipe out God's seed. And so last time, remember, we defined the seed promise in terms of what we call corporate solidarity. Corporate solidarity meaning that there's one and many. You have the one Messiah who's going to bring salvation for the many, but the one Messiah is brought forth from the many. In other words, if you lose Israel, you lose the Messiah. And if you don't have the Messiah, he can't provide salvation for the Jews and Gentiles who will believe. So Satan is attacking God's seed. He attacks Christ. He also tries to attack the many, not just before the advent of Christ, but also after so that he can make God a liar. But what we learn here in Revelation chapter 12 is that God is faithful. And in fact, he will overcome and bring about all of the promises by protecting Israel God's seed. Now, last time we were together, I showed you this summary slide where we saw not an exhaustive list, but a representative list of all that Satan had done in the past to try to wipe out either Israel, the many, or as in the case of Matthew chapter 2 at the very bottom, try to wipe out the one that is Christ, the seed. So what I did is I kind of led you through that, that summary. And what I did is I went then to this slide where I showed you in Hosea 11.1, 1, the prophet said, when Israel, now think, stop there for just a moment. When Hosea 11.1, 1, Hosea says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. Who's Israel? Well, Israel's the many. It's the many seed, right? Well, notice he says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so we learn that if Israel had indeed perished in Egypt, you not only lose Israel, but you lose the Messiah. Why? Because Messiah comes from Judah, one of the tribes of Israel, right? Now, this, I think, helps explain how the New Testament writers use the Old Testament. And the example I gave you was Matthew 2.15. Notice here, Matthew said of Jesus. Now, remember the situation. Herod is trying to wipe out in Matthew 2 all of the children in Bethlehem. So God has Joseph bring Jesus and Mary down to Egypt. And so as he goes into Egypt, in the narrative, it says in Matthew 2.15, that he, that's Joseph, remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, remember what's somewhat unusual by that cite, about that citation here in Matthew 2.15 is that Matthew is citing, out of Egypt I called my son, while Jesus is going into Egypt. And the curious thing is, why didn't Matthew just wait until Jesus came out of Egypt with Joseph and Mary and then cite that passage? Well, I think what it shows us is that to Matthew, the focus isn't whether Jesus was going into Egypt or out of Egypt. The focus was the son. And what Matthew is trying to show us is that God was faithful in the Exodus to protect the Son by protecting Israel in the Old Testament. Well, now in Herod's day, Matthew's day as it were, 
God was also faithful to protect the son, this time the single son, Jesus, from Herod. And so in both cases, God was protecting the, the seed promise. Does everyone see that? Okay, very cool, isn't it? So God is faithful, and that's what we see here then when we turn it to Revelation 12, 5 through 6, that God protects the seed. That's really what chapter 12, I think, is about. Good to see you, Mike. It's good to see everyone here. It's so wonderful. Um, by the way, uh, just as a quick aside, we might be using another, another room here, uh, and this room may give us more space, just to let you know. So we're going to figure that out if it's actually more space or not. But thanks, everyone, for showing up. Let me read Revelation 12, 5 through 6. It says this. It says, And she gave birth to a son, a male child. Now, let me just stop there to make sure we're all on the same page. The she there is the woman. That's Israel, right? And who is the male child that's being birthed? The Messiah. Okay? So this Messiah, this child, it says, is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to, the, to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. So again, the male child is the Messiah. And we know that not just from the context, but notice even what's said of this child. He is the one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, does that ring a bell to anyone? What passage that may have come from? It comes from Psalm 2, doesn't it? Psalm 2, verse 9. In fact, turn your Bibles there. Psalm 2, we'll look specifically at verses 7 through 9. Again, please turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. As you're doing so, remember Psalm 2 is what we call an enthronement psalm. And so it is where God has installed or enthroned his king on Mount Zion. And no matter if the whole world tries to reject that king, God's purposes will ultimately stand. Zion is his headquarters and his king is enthroned. And so Psalm 2 was originally applied to King David. King David was set up by Yahweh. He supplanted the Jebusites as the tenants of Jerusalem. But yet King David's work was really only a foreshadowing of the ultimate David, the Messiah. So Psalm 2 is ultimately about the Messiah, and even the Jews understood that. Psalm 2, 7 through 9, Yahweh says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now here's verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So when Jesus returns, he in fact does do this in Revelation 19. He is the one who strikes down the nations with a rod of iron and the sword that proceeds from his mouth. Now, as we read Psalm 2, 7 through 9, obviously verse 9 is what's being alluded to here in Revelation 12. But take notice in Psalm 2, in verse 7 with this phrase, today I have begotten you. I want to talk a little bit about that because I believe that has to do with the ascension. And you notice the, the ascension is mentioned here in Revelation 12, as I'll show you. Today I have begotten you. A lot of times when I had read that as a young Christian, I had assumed that that had to do with the incarnation of Jesus, that at his birth he becomes, in a sense, the son. But what's very interesting is in the ancient Near East, a king... And his birthday was associated not with the time that he comes out of his mother's womb, but with his ascension to the throne. So the birthday for the king in antiquity had to do with their ascension, the very day that they become the king who sits on the throne. And I think the same thing applies to Jesus Christ, that his begotten day does not mean that he came into existence, for he existed as the son for all of eternity. And I don't think it has to do with his incarnation, but it is the moment in which he is seated at the right hand of God and is therefore the king, the Messiah who rules over all. Okay, so that is the time that God has begotten him, as it were. And I want to show you further evidence of this idea, and I want to relate it to Revelation 12. But turn your Bibles again to Hebrews 1, 3 through 5. Now, if I'm correct, 
that the idea of God having his begotten, the Messiah, if that's attached to the ascension rather than the birth of Christ, his incarnation, we should see evidence of that elsewhere. Well, I think we see it here in Hebrews 1, verses 3 through 5. Remember in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews wants to show two things about the Son right away. He, number one, wants to show that the Son is greater than the angels, and he's higher, and that's what we're going to see here in Hebrews 1. But the writer of Hebrews also wants us to know later on that he is also the supreme priest. He has a higher priesthood, this Jesus does. He has a greater priesthood than the Levitical priesthood since he lives forever. But notice here in Hebrews 1, 3 through 5, the grand point is, well, certainly this Jesus is higher than the angels. He's, in fact, very God. It says, and he, this is Hebrews 1, 3, and he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. Stop there. What Yahweh is, Jesus is qualitatively. Not that they're the same person, but qualitatively, everything that the Father is, Christ is. Okay, in fact, we see that same idea taught in John 1, 1. Okay, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When it says when the Word was God, it doesn't mean that Jesus, the Son, the Word, and the Father, God, are identical people. But the grammar teaches us that they're qualitatively identical. There's no difference. The same thing we see here in Hebrews 1.1. Notice it says then, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's the ascension. Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now here's verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now stop there. The begotten there in Greek is a perfect form of gnao. Now gnao in the perfect would indicate something that happened in the past. He was begotten and it was perfectly completed and the effect is always with us. Now that certainly can't apply to the son's existence for the son always existed. But notice the writer of Hebrews ties it directly to the Messiah sitting at the right hand of majesty. Does everyone see that? Well, that would be the ascension. So this idea of the son being begotten is his receiving his kingship, as it were, when he sits at the right hand of God. A fulfillment of Psalm 110, a fulfillment of Psalm 2, a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7.14. All of the promises in the Old Testament start to find their fruition then in this idea of reigning with Christ reigning at the right hand of God. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, I was going to bring that up, but I was looking as it goes forward. Yeah. You are my son today, I become your father, here it says. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be his son. Then it goes back to the incarnation when it says, yeah. when again he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and all the angels must worship him, showing he's greater than angels. Yeah. But then, and about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants a fiery flame, but <laughs> to the sun, your throne, oh God, is forever and ever, back to the enthronement. Exactly. Well said. That's right. Amen. So I think that confirms that. I yeah. was just starting to work on my sermon for next week, which is going to be all about Christology. Yeah. It's going to have to be an overview or the sermon would go for five hours. <laughs> but I was yeah, looking. We'll be there. <laughs> my voice won't take it. No. Uh, but this is one of the places I was looking. Wow. There's so much about Christ that's taught in the New Testament. Yeah. And it's an essential doctrine, and we need to get it right. Yeah, amen. Well, I'm excited about that, and thank you for... One of the things that Bob and I have always been determined to do is to teach theology, and we know sometimes it doesn't even make good sermon material. Like last week, I don't think it's very exciting to see a whole chart come up. But for the people of God, I think we need to be equipped to understand the various views. And so that's one thing that Bob and I are really dedicated to, to doing. And so one of the things I want to thank you as a congregation is that you let us do it. There's not a lot of places that will let you teach theology. So thank you for being that kind of people who love the truth. Now, here's what I want to show you then. The reason I'm mentioning this ascension and the fact that that was really... The, the point, as it were, in which Christ is enthroned as the king, it's not that he, he was birthed, 
and came into existence at a point of time, but at his enthronement in the ascension, he becomes the king. Well, it's the last gasp or grasp of Satan to try to have uh, anything to do with the Messiah. In other words, he can't wipe Messiah out. Why? Because Jesus is no longer the earthly suffering servant who had humbled himself a little lower than the angels. But once he's enthroned, sitting at the right hand of God, Satan really has to turn his attention away from the one seed towards the many because the one seated at the right hand of God. And we see evidence of that. Notice here in Revelation 12, it says, And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Well, then right away after that in verse 6, it says, Then the woman, there's back to Israel, the many, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. Now, we'll come to that. But I want to talk about the significance of this ascension because Christ being caught up to the throne is a significant event. And it's one that we often don't talk about in Christianity. We have Easter for the resurrection and the crucifixion of Christ. We have the birth of Christ celebrated, you know, at Christmas time. But do we ever celebrate the ascension or the enthronement of Christ? We probably have to come up with a different holiday, get more days off and et cetera, right? But let's, let's talk about the significance of this enthronement again. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 36. I think it's very significant, this ascension. Look at uh, what Peter writes here in his sermon at Pentecost, Acts 2, 32 through 36. He's giving evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Now, stop there. Remember, he had already attributed the resurrection to Psalm 1610, that that applied to Christ and not David. So David was still rotting in the tomb, right? So in Psalm 1610, the fact that the Holy One would not see decay, that can't apply to David, Peter argues. He's still in the tomb. And they could go there and say, yeah, he's still rotting it up. But the implication is, well, where's Christ's tomb? Where is he rotting? By the way, all they had to do to disprove Christianity then was to produce the corpse. They say, well, no, his tomb's right over there. Well, they couldn't do it. And let me just do a little apologetics with you. Do you remember the antagonist to Christianity at the time, the Jewish leadership? They were claiming that the Jewish believers, the disciples, stole the body. Well, why weren't they ever arrested for grave robbing? That would be a capital offense in the Roman Empire. Well, they're never, they're never arrested for that. In fact, Peter dies many years later for different reasons, and so does Paul, etc. So it shows us that the charges that they were grave robbing or stealing the body simply weren't true. Not even the Roman authorities nor the Jewish authorities believed it. Okay, yeah, Brian. And if they did, in fact, steal the body, nothing happened to the Roman guards. Yes, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that's another great point. Yeah, thank you. So anyway, I'm sorry, this is a quick aside, but... Notice now he goes to the ascension, verse 33 says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, now this is the Messiah, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So stop there. Who is it that bestows the Spirit? The Son. The Son is the one who pours the Spirit. So Jesus ascends on high, and he is our parakletos, our counselor. And he's the one who lives to make intercession for us. He's preparing a place for us. And if that weren't enough, he sends the Spirit to give us gifts. He lavishes the Spirit upon us. And the Spirit is also a parakletos, a counselor, who even prays for us in groanings too deep for words because we don't even know how to pray as we ought, as it says in Romans chapter 8. Isn't that wonderful? So that's what Jesus does. Verse 34, it says, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says. So David said this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, here's Psalm 110, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel, this is his conclusion, Peter's, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and and Christ. Now, everyone stop there. Notice he says something interesting. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. 
well, I thought he was always Lord in Christ as the Son. And again, I think the implication, though, is he always was, of course, as the Son, eternal, the Lord, right? But in his enthronement, seated at the right hand of God, it was an established appointment that Christ had fulfilled, and he forevermore is the enthroned king. And so at that point, then, the whole world knows, or should know, that he is the only king. In fact, turn your Bibles real quickly to Romans 1.4. I'll show you another. In fact, can somebody read Romans 1.4? I don't have it written down. Bob, would you mind reading that for us? I sure will. You'll see a very similar point, because some of this language confuses us. Wait a minute. He was made Lord in Christ. I thought he always was. Yeah, actually, this is one of the passages that we often cover teaching Christology. Yeah. Romans 1, 3, and 4. 4 says, And who has been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. So there, what we have is a declaration of what is true. Exactly. Not a new development. Exactly. So that Romans 1, 4 is the same idea. It's not that all of a sudden the Messiah became God. It's that he's declared or appointed the term, I think in Greek is horizo in Romans 1, 4, where he's appointed or declared to be who he is. So that's the way we should see Christ's enthronement. When he is seated at the right hand of God, no longer is he the suffering servant on earth that Satan can possibly tempt anymore. And so what we see then in the Revelation text is after the child, the Messiah, is caught up to the throne of God. Does everyone see that below the underlined portion? Verse 5, is everyone there? Notice right away that in verse 6, it says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Now that the Messiah is at the right hand of God, Satan turns his attention toward the seed, the other seed that is the many. Okay, that's Israel. And now I think the implication is the only thing he can do is try to wipe out the promises of God to make God a liar. Now, what's very interesting is we turn to verse 6 here in Revelation 12. Remember, chronologically, this occurs after the ascension of Christ. But it also occurs even after the church age. Okay, because what we have is the woman is fleeing into the wilderness in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So now John has chronologically skipped thousands of years in just one verse. He's gone from the ascension of Christ to the fleeing of Israel in the last half of the 70th week of Daniel. Does everyone follow that? So when does the woman Israel flee into the wilderness? It's the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. Now, not everyone agrees with us. For example, how many of here have heard of preterism? I've mentioned that before. I know several of you have. Well, preterism comes from the Latin term praetor, which means past. Well, preterists believe that these things were fulfilled in 70 AD. And so their claim would be that this is fulfilled in Israel when many of the people in the church at that time in Jerusalem fled away into the wilderness to a place called Pella, which is in the Transjordan region, during the 70 AD captivity of Jerusalem, just prior to that. In fact, let me read to you. By the way, a preterist who holds to this view is a man named David Chilton, and you can read about his views in a book called Days of Vengeance. But listen to what he cites. He cites Eusebius. Eusebius wrote this. Eusebius was a church historian who supposedly gives them comfort for this view. Let me just find out. Here it is. Eusebius, quote, The people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city who were worthy of it to depart and dwell in one of the cities of Perea, which they called Pella, unquote. So that's in the Decapolis region. So many preterists will say, aha, this has already occurred. Israel, it's not really Israel, it's the church. The church fled into the wilderness just prior to the 70 AD captivity of Jerusalem. But here's the problem with that. First of all, they have to make the woman the church, don't they? Okay, now what's the problem with that? Did the church give birth to the Messiah? No, in fact, Messiah gave birth to the church, as it were, his doctrines, right? Well, of course, that distorts the image right away. We know it's Israel because remember the imagery of the stars and the moon and the sun? 
which is an allusion back to Genesis and to Rachel and to Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. So right away, they're on a wrong footing. But consider these other reasons why they possibly can't be right, the preterist. First of all, when Eusebius says that the church fled to Pella, and they did, they fled in 61 to 62 AD. Well, that's eight to nine years prior to the destruction in 70 AD. It's not three and a half years. So notice we're dealing, notice at the very bottom of this passage, Revelation 12, 6, 1,260 days, that's three and a half years. So right away, the timing doesn't work out. They have to stretch that and say, well, that's just a generality. Well, no, I think the Bible's very specific. So if they could prove that it happened within three and a half years specifically, they'd have more going for them, but they can't. Here's a second problem. This time period discussed in Revelation is far more severe than what happened in 70 AD. Think about the sixth trumpet. We saw the earth lose a third of its inhabitants. Remember back to the fourth seal, you lost a quarter of the inhabitants. When you add all of that up, a half of the earth's population had perished in the book of Revelation. And that's why Jesus says, this is the worst time period ever. I'm paraphrasing, unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive. So let me ask you, when in 70 AD did the world lose half of its population? It never happened. So again, it doesn't fit what the preterists are trying to claim. Now, the final thing I'd point out is some words from Jesus. In Matthew 24, 16, when Jesus says, you see the abomination that causes desolation, this is at the midpoint in the tribulation, he says, those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. Well, the term for mountains doesn't translate well for the region of Pella, where the Christians fled in 61 and 62 AD. Why? Because Pella is a low-lying foothill area within the Transjordan Valley. When the people of God are to flee to the mountains, it's much more in keeping with the Judean wilderness, which is much higher than the Transjordan region. It wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to warn them to flee to the mountains if they're going to go to a place of lower terrain. No, they're going to go to the surrounding Judean wilderness. So none of what Jesus says, none of what John says in Revelation, nor does history itself line up with the preterist claim. No, dear ones, these things are going to occur, the fleeing of Israel in the wilderness in the future yet. And again, specifically the last three and a half years of the tribulation time period. Now, further evidence of that, of course, is notice in Revelation 12, 6, at the bottom it says there's 1,260 days. That's how long they're going to be nourished. Now, this 1,260 days, again, is the last three and a half years, and we have corroboration that it's the last three and a half years in which the Antichrist tries to wipe out Israel. And we know that from Daniel 7.25. Daniel 7.25 is about the Antichrist and his career. And notice what it says. It's not much of a career, right? We know some people make a career in trying to attack the things of God. Well, that's what Antichrist does. Daniel 7.25, it says, He, that's the Antichrist, will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, that's one, times, that's two, see, add them together, you have three, and half a time, well, that's three and a half. So the Antichrist is going to make alterations in the Jewish law for how long? For three and a half years. Oh, my goodness, it's the same time period that John is alluding to in Revelation 12, 6. That's the three and a half year window in which the Antichrist is going to try to wear down the people of God, that is Israel who have been nourished by God in the wilderness. Now, what I want you to see from this is turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. I want you to see that the first half of the tribulation, the first half of the seven-year period, is relatively easy for Israel. It's the second three-and-a-half-year period, the Great Tribulation, (laughs) that is very difficult on them. And the reason I want to show you this is because I think it makes better sense of all the data Why Jesus can tell the Jews, well, when you see wars and rumors of wars, don't be frightened. Well, won't you be frightened if the Antichrist was coming after you? Well, the reason the Antichrist doesn't come after the Jews in the first three and a half years is because they have a covenant. 
It's at the three and a half year mark that Antichrist breaks the covenant. So think of conceptually the tribulation as a seven year window. I'll, I'll go um, left or right from your perspective. The first three and a half years, Israel has it roughly, or I, I should say relatively easy, because there's been a covenant made with Antichrist. But it's at the three and a half year window or mark that the rest of it gets very bad for the Jews. Because at that point, the Antichrist has broken his agreement. So the first three and a half years are rough on the whole world, but they're not necessarily so rough on Israel. So notice the data on this, Matthew 24, 4 through 15. Here Jesus is answering the questions of the disciples. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? It says, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Now stop there. How does Revelation 6, 1, the very beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, begin? With false Christ. With the false Christ, the Antichrist, coming on the scene. But there'll be others with him, the false prophet and other contenders. Okay? So right away we see that that's fulfilled in Revelation 6. Then he says this. He says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Then he says this thing. It's very curious. Now, he's speaking to the Jewish population. It says, see that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. That's the divine necessity. But that is not yet the end. So stop there. Why would the Jews not be frightened when they see of these wars and rumors of wars? Because they're not going to be attacked yet. It's the first part of the tribulation. He says, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. That's Odin, remember? The birth pangs prior to the Messianic age. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, verse 9, and will kill you. Now here is where it gets bad. And you will be hated by all the nations because of my name. And that, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdoms will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So when you get down to verse 14, Matthew or Jesus has brought you all the way through the entirety of the 70th week. Does everyone see that? Now you're to the end of the 70th week. But now what he does by way of recapitulation in verse 15 is he brings you back to the midpoint. Does everyone see that in verse 15? He gives you a therefore. Now he brings you back to the midpoint, the three and a half year mark. He says, therefore, when you, the Jews, see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, that fleeing to the mountains there in verse 16 is the same as we just saw in Revelation 12 where the woman, Israel, was led into the wilderness. That's what Jesus is referring to. But notice here, Jesus doesn't warn them until they see the abomination that causes desolation. When does that happen? At the three-and-a-half-year mark. And that's why Revelation 12:6 is talking about the 1,260 days, the last three-and-a-half years. Does that all come together in our minds? Now, let me just show you one passage. There's four passages that we should see in this. Matthew 24, Daniel 9, Daniel 7, and Revelation 12. So let's put the other passage up on the screen. Daniel 9, verse 27, talking about Antichrist. It says, And he, the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Stop there. I used to debate a person that claimed that the one who was making this covenant for one week was Christ and not Antichrist. Well, there's many problems with that. First of all, grammatically, the nearest <laughs> antecedent is the work of the Antichrist, not the Messiah. But more importantly, the work of this one who makes this covenant, we have to ask the question, when did Jesus make a covenant with anyone for one week of years, that is seven years? Does anyone know of a covenant that Jesus made with somebody for seven years? I don't. But we know from Daniel 7.25 earlier that the Antichrist will do that. So certainly this is the Antichrist, and he makes a covenant for one week. Now, some will say, ah, oh, you obtuse, ignorant, pre-tribulationalist. 
you believe in one week, you want to take that literally, you should see it as seven days, not seven years. Au contraire. Why? Because Daniel uses years and not days. How do we know that? Earlier in Daniel 9, Daniel alludes to Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 25, 12, where Jeremiah said, you people are going to be in captivity, Israel, for 70 years. So Daniel plays off of that 70, and he has the 70 weeks or 70 times 7 years prophecy, and he's using years. Why? Because Jeremiah was. That's how we know. So, yeah, Tom. You hear about the uh, peace agreement with Israel. Yeah. So does that fit into what we're looking at? Because at that point, that would be the line drawn when uh, the first three and a half years uh, or not. I, I think you're exactly right. There'll be some form of agreement. We don't know exactly what it'll be like. But in the first, it'll be a seven-year agreement that this Antichrist will make. And possibly because there's been so much warfare prior, we don't know. But he'll make an agreement with Israel, apparently according to Daniel 9.27. But in the middle of the week, he breaks his promises because he ends up changing their laws. That's the implication. So I think you're exactly right. Once we see, like let's say it happens next week, so once we see that there's a peace agreement, should be, I mean, in your mind, would you say, okay, this is the beginning? Well, no, um, we won't. I, the, my understanding is we won't be here for this. Remember, this is all within the parousia, the 70th week, the last seven years. But I believe the beginning of Christ's parousia, his coming, begins with the rapture of the church. And the reason I say that is because the rapture is spoken as coming imminently, and so is the day of the Lord as imminently. Well, the only way both can be imminent, if one preceded the other, you'd have a precursor to the other. And you, both, you couldn't say that they're both imminent. But the reason they're both imminent is because the rapture of the church is the beginning of the parousia or the day of the Lord. So the first part, the very first part, just prior to the day of the Lord is the rapture, followed by the revelation of the man of lawlessness and the apostasy. Yep. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Very good question. Excellent. Okay. So now we just discovered here that the Antichrist made a covenant with Israel for a one seven-year period. But notice it says, in the middle of the week, that's at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction on that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. I can't tell you how difficult in Hebrew this is reading, where, it's, where it says that on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. It's so difficult reading. My theory is that Paul has to give us commentary in 2 Thessalonians 2 as to what in the world Daniel's saying there. Okay? Here's the issue. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul makes it very clear that the way the Antichrist performs this abomination is that he sets himself up to be God in the temple. So there it becomes very clear. But I want you to notice that this abominations, bedelugma, is the term that's used in the Greek Septuagint. Use that five times, bedelugma, abomination. It's something that is horrific to God. Now, what could be more horrific to God than a pretend God setting himself up to be God in the temple? Well, that's about as bad as it gets. Now, I want you to consider for just a moment that, in a sense, this did happen under Antiochus Epiphanes IV in the 164 to 167 B.C. range. But it never did occur with the Romans. The Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD, but they never set anyone up into the temple to try to pretend that they were God. Are you with me? Now, the reason I say that is because Jesus, who obviously lives after the Antiochus Epiphanes IV reign in 164 to 167 BC, he makes reference to Bedelugma as well the abomination of desolation. And so he says it's in the future. So from Jesus, just think about him living, let's just say this is in 33 AD. He sees this as future, so it's not fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And we know that in 70 AD, the Romans never put anyone up in the temple who declared themselves to be God. Are you with me? So the only way that this can be fulfilled then is at some future date within the 70th week of Daniel. I think that that's how we should reason through the text here. So this is certainly future. Jesus is alluding to it. And again, what Jesus is saying, 
is for the first three and a half years, yes, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, you Jews, but don't be frightened, for the end is not yet. But, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, then you should be concerned. Um, you guys ever hear someone tell you all? Um, I remember I had a flight instructor who used to tell me that I shouldn't panic, and he would let me know when the proper time for panicking was. Okay, anyone ever tell you that? I was doing aerobatics. I like to do aerobatics when I was a younger man. And we would take and do these rolls and loops and stuff in this airplane. Well, we had a little air, airplane called a Cessna 152 Aerobat. Only had 110 horsepower. So every maneuver started with dive to 120 knots. You had to dive to get to 120 knots so you could perform your maneuvers. And this one particular flight instructor, when I was doing aerobatics with him, he said, you'll know the time when it's time to bail out. We had chutes on. And the reason you'll know it's time to bail out is you'll feel my footprint of my shoe on your cheek because I'll be pushing off and getting out of the airplane. <laughs> I thought, well, that's a good indicator. So the point is Jesus is saying the same thing. You're going to know the time to panic. It's when you see the abomination of desolation. That's at the three-and-a-half-year mark, and that's what Revelation 12 is teaching, that God is going to nourish the people at that point in the wilderness. Okay. Now, we see then Satan is cast down. Revelation 12 Seven through nine. Oh, do we have a question? Maybe I'll stop here for a minute. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, sorry. I, I, no, that's this good. is actually a question from a little bit ago. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'm remembering this right, but I, I've taken you know, some classes on this stuff. And as I recall, the, the, in Daniel, the word weak, yeah. you know, I think that there are different Hebrew words for weeks of years versus what we think of as a seven-day uh, week I, is is that I might be remembering that wrong. I, this really is a, just a question. Yeah, that, the is term, that your understanding also or, or not? Yeah, it's literally in the in the Hebrews it's seventy sevens, and so it's your so even the week is a it's a translation by the English translator. Let me just back up. So when you see the term week, it's literally a seven in the Hebrew. Okay, so um, the, the the point is the sevens is the issue. And so in this text, what you have to discern is what does he mean by 77s? Well, we know from Daniel 9 earlier in the passage that Daniel's building off of the 70 years that Jeremiah, because he says, he mentions Jeremiah by name, by, by the prophet. And so we know he's dealing with years. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, so that, that really, for a person just casually reading, yeah. like if you read you know, a chapter a day or something, yep. you know, this can get confusing, but you have to kind of take sections and and think of the context exactly well said very good point thanks eric yeah yep so what we want to keep the same denomination of whether it's years (laughs) or weeks or months that the prophets themselves are using and certainly daniel's using years because jeremiah did that's how we know yep very good point okay so now we see that satan is cast down here in revelation 12 7 through 9 it says and there was war in heaven michael and his angels waging war with the dragon The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, dear ones, here, let me just set the time frame for this. John now here is reverting to the time period just before the flight of the woman into the wilderness. Okay, and so he does this to furnish further reasons why it is that Satan is so angry and why he wants to kill the child, or the, the many, the, the woman, Israel. And the reason why is he's been thrown down. He's been exempted from heaven. Now, the big question is, well, when does this happen? Okay, well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the first thing I want you to see here in this text is it says Satan no longer has access here. Notice in Revelation 12, 9, it says the great dragon was thrown down. And now for the first time in Revelation 12, notice he's explicitly called the devil and Satan. So we're not left wondering as to who the dragon is. John specifically tells us, well, he's the devil and he's Satan. Devil, Diablos, is the one who's a slanderer, someone who slanders the saints typically and brings accusations against them. The term Satan is the term for adversary. So he is the adversary of God and the adversary of the people of God. Now, 
when Satan launches an allegation against you and I, and he slanders us, who do we have in heaven to represent us? Jesus Christ. So he's our defense attorney who doesn't allow any of these accusations to stick, right? We'll come back to that here in the next slide. But the big question here, again, is to what time period is John referring when he's talking about the expulsion of Satan and his angels? Now, there's several possibilities. One is it could be referring to what happened at the fall. Is that what's being referred to here? Let me just read to you here. The initial rebellion would be the pre-Adamic fall. Are you, are you with me? Now, what would be the pre-Adamic fall? It would be when all the angels fell with Satan prior to Adam even falling. All right? Now, is that what John is referring to? I don't think so for a couple of reasons. Number one, Satan has already sought to kill the male child at this point. Are you with me? So if the male child has already been sought to be killed, that obviously didn't happen in the very beginning. So it's not before Adam. Second, Revelation 12, 6, and later in verse 14, we see the connection to the 1,260 days. That's the last three and a half years. So whatever time period is being referred to, I think it should be linked to the last three and a half years, not the primordial fall. Okay. Now, further evidence that the 70th week of Daniel is being referred to here. Notice it says, Michael and his angels were waging war with the dragon. Does everyone see that? This is where I want to read. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. What I want you to see is that John is deliberately connecting this to what's happening in the 70th week where Michael will stand up uniquely for Israel and fight on their behalf. Again, turn your Bibles to Daniel 12. Now, remember earlier in Daniel, I think it's in chapter 10 if I recall, you had Michael the archangel who had to wrestle with other demonic beings that were over nations. And so apparently this is something that happens in the unseen realm, that you have angels of nations that contend with one another. Well, in the 70th week of Daniel, you're going to have a mighty battle, and Satan and his forces will lose. Michael and his forces will win. And we see that in Daniel 12.1. It says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress... <laughs> such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now, stop there. When Daniel says they will occur at a time when there was distress, distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, who else said those words? Jesus in Matthew 24. Now we know we're talking about the same time period, the 70th week. He says, and at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Now, notice in Daniel 12, 1, that phrase, will arise, it's what's called a yiktol verb. It's the imperfect form of a math. Now, a math just means to stand. And so the idea would be that Michael is sitting down. It's just an image. Don't take it. But, he, but the idea is he stands up to fight. That's the idea. Now, I wrote a whole research article. It's on critical issues commentary in the scholarly section because I was debunking the myth that somehow Michael was the restrainer. We had a, um, a scholar at one time who was writing that Michael the archangel is actually standing aside. But what I show in that article is every time a math is used, the idea of standing with reference to Michael, it's that he's standing to fight on behalf of Israel. He's not getting out of the way. Are you with me? So what we have then is in Revelation 12, Revelation 12, verse 7, assumes that you understand Daniel 12, that in the 70th week of Daniel, you're going to have Michael the archangel waging war against the enemies of God. And they're going to be expelled here, apparently, according to Revelation chapter 12. Okay, now, Bob. I have a question about the translation. Yeah. I have the Holman Christian Standard. It says there will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. Oh, interesting. Now, that I don't know if that's a good reading of the... Hebrew, but yeah. if it is, this would be referring back to Babel and yeah. then the table of nations. Exactly. And we know from Deuteronomy that at that time God put the different nations under the sons of God. Exactly. Okay, which yeah. would be this divine council. Right. So 
if that is a good reading, and I have no way of Yeah, I don't know either. I don't, I just have I'd have to look that up. Yeah. I'm just looking at my translation. NIV says the same thing. Yeah. The NIV says the same okay, thing. Good. Okay, yeah. So here, think about it. So all of this time, the way God's ruled is by having the various nations under this divine council that includes fallen beings. Right. And whenever one nation, like Nazi Germany, rises up to try to take over the others, yeah. there's a battle and a pushback right. to keep them back in their place. Yeah. So all these wars have been just keeping there from being a new Babel. That's how God rules his universe. Yeah. Now, if this is the correct reading, yeah. well, then what's happening in Daniel's 70th week is God allows that to change. That's right. And there becomes this covenant, and everything goes under Antichrist. Amen. And so no longer do you have these warring things going on. But then here Mm -hmm. is the ultimate war that's going to take place. That's right. Because Michael rises up against this thing that, so it hasn't been like that since... Babel. Exactly right. Is, Bob, I think, think exactly. that's a possible reading? I do. It's a good, you get an astute reading award. Well, yeah. <laughs> it, it depends on the Hebrew that I don't know. No, I think you're probably right. Here, here, let me just play off of that. There's a lot of debate as to who the restrainer is that's referred to in Second Thessalonians. A lot of people assume that it's the Holy Spirit, and I don't think so because if Paul had wanted to indicate that it was the Holy Spirit, he sure uses very ambiguous terms for it. It's very unusual that he wouldn't just come out and say it. Now, one reason why I think Paul is being ambiguous with who the restrainer is, is I think he's referring to government. And at that time, who was the governing officials? It was Rome. And so he'd have very good reason to be ambiguous as to who the restrainer was. The restrainer, I believe, was government. And the reason why I say that is because what Bob is saying is that he's exactly right. In Deuteronomy 32, God gives all the nations over in the unseen realm to these, the, the host of heaven right? The sons of God, as they're called. Well, these demonic beings and angelic beings are ruling over the nations. And what that allows us, as Bob was saying, is that you have one nation gets too big, the other nations attack. And so you have nations restraining one another rather than us being governed directly by the demonic realm. And the the joy that it brings us as human beings is we don't have one world rule. But what happens in the 70th week of Daniel is that restraint is taken away. You have one world rule, and who is it under? Yeah, and who's, who's behind Antichrist? Satan in the angelic realm. It gets really bad. It's exactly right. So the restrainer who's taken out of the way is government, and the reason why I think Paul is so opaque, he could have said the Holy Spirit's the restrainer, and you know that. He doesn't say it. And the reason I believe, my theory, I can't be sure, but the reason I think he says that is because if he, was, if he would come out and say the government is the restrainer and he's going to be taken out of the way, then he'd be in trouble with the Romans. That's the idea. Yeah. Well, the, this, this reading that we're discussing yeah. would also explain why the term Babylon is used. Yeah. Because it goes back to Babel where they wanted this. Exactly. Okay, so they wanted one world, you know, with this pagan... Babylonian religion, yep, and God stopped them, and He restrained their effort to do that exactly by dispersing them, changing their languages, and then drawing out the boundaries of the nations yeah. and putting them under the sons of God. Amen. So, therefore, during this seventieth week, this all is reversed, and they finally get their Babylon, exactly Babel that they wanted all along. Yeah. But instead of heaven on earth, they're getting hell on earth. Exactly. Well said, yeah. Yeah. yeah Tom. That, that's the whole purpose of the United Nations. Exactly. Just to have one world government. And then as that gets closer, that, that's exactly what happens. Yeah. I think, right? That's right. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Would this be, uh, will make uh, uh, us as citizens of the United States, would it, this particular reading here, keeping one world religion or one nation, it would be incumbent on us then to vote, correct, and participate in this government as opposed, like the Jehovah's, they don't, they, they, they will not participate. They say it's unbiblical. Right, you know, I would disagree with them. I agree with, with you. I think we're called to be salt and light, yeah. uh, Matthew 5. We're called to render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and we're to interact and be salt and light 
in this world. And so we don't put our hope ultimately in political institutions, right. but you're right, we're certainly called to affect them. Uh, so what's interesting is by you and I, in a sense, standing for righteousness and God is bringing about depravity that leads to this one world order leading to Babylon. Mm -hmm. In a sense, we're trying to stand up for God's moral decree, mm -hmm. but right. God is going to bring about his decretive will, isn't he? So we're, there's two wills. We're obeying his moral will, but meanwhile, if we don't win the elections, God's bringing about his decretive will. Yeah. Yeah. No, well said, Mike. Yeah. Yeah, Brian. I just wanted to quickly say I, I used to struggle with the restrainer myself. In fact, we've had yeah. some uh, talks about that. But now I, I do believe that it is the government. And, yeah. and one of the simple reasons is when you look at God's purpose for government, one of his main reasons was yeah. to be a restrainer. Sure. And, and so it only makes sense then at the end is to remove that. Exactly. So it, it makes logical sense. It does, and I think that that's why, if you look at the language that Paul uses, and I don't have it in front of me, but it's so opaque for him to refer to the Holy Spirit the way he does, it'd be very unusual. So I just don't think that, and then plus the Holy Spirit's used to regenerate people during the 70th week. He's still in operation, and plus he fills believers who are there on earth who come to faith. So I just don't bind the Holy Spirit view, and I don't b believe that the restrainer is ultimately Michael either, as some would say, because he stands to fight for Israel. But now here's one thing I want to get into now before we lose our time. The other, we're asking, when did this happen? When were these demonic beings expelled from heaven? We know it didn't happen in the primordial time, but did it happen during Jesus' <coughs> earthly ministry or what happened to him or during his work during his earthly ministry or even in the cross. Well, here's why I say this. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. Here you have the 70, and some manuscripts have 72. It's, there's a debate as to 70 or 72. But you have the 70 go out, and they are casting demons out under the authority of Christ. Listen to what it says. It says, The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching, this is Jesus now, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven." So what some would say is, aha, here Jesus says he saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Certainly, Satan had been expelled there prior to the 70th week of Daniel, and it was, in fact, during Jesus' earthly ministry. But here's several problems with it. Number one, Jesus in this passage is linking himself to the prophet Daniel once again. Notice that phrase, I was watching. That's a phrase that's used of <coughs> Daniel who was watching the night visions in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, etc. So Jesus here has his prophetic hat on. And listen to what Joel Green, Joel Green is a scholar that Bob often cites in Luke Acts. Listen to what he says regarding this passage. He says it better than I can. Quote, he says, The question is, when did Satan or when will Satan fall? Some find in Jesus' assertion a reference to a primordial event or an event in the life of Jesus himself. But neither of these options make sense of the actual ongoing exercise of satanic influence in the Lucan narrative. Indeed, in the Lucan presentation, the death of Jesus itself is a manifestation of the power of darkness. And he cites Luke 22 and Luke chapter 23. He says, nor is it likely that the fall of Satan is occasioned by Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Again, since Satan remains proactive in the narrative of Acts, for example, Acts 13, Acts 26, etc. He says, certainly the success of the ministry of exorcism by the 70 does not presuppose the downfall of Satan. Rather, their mission presupposes only what Jesus claims, namely, that he had given them authority over all satanic forces. Luke, therefore, portrays Jesus as having a prophetic vision whose content was the future and ultimate downfall of Satan, presumably scheduled for the time of judgment to which he already alluded in verses 12 through 14. So stop there. Remember, Jesus had already alluded to the judgment that comes upon Chorazin and Bethsaida. If the miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, 
that had been or had been done yeah, in Sodom and Gomorrah that had been done in them, they would have repented, right? So he's talking about the judgment, and he says this. He says, such a view is consonant with some Second Temple Jewish text, but Jew, excuse me, but Jesus' view in this Lucan co-text pushes beyond the content of those. The decisive fall of Satan as an, is anticipated in the future, but it is already becoming manifest through the mission of Jesus and by extension through the ministry of his envoys. So, dear ones, what we have is an already not yet in the working of Christ. In his earthly ministry, he is pillaging Satan's realm. The lame leap, the deaf hear, you have people coming to faith, the demonic are expelled. You have all of this work in the earthly ministry of Christ. But yet, the, the ultimate fulfillment of Satan being thrown down is still in the future. Yeah. Well, I was wondering, because <clears throat> I know Satan was, you know, I'm sure cast out of God's presence when he rebelled against God. And I know that, you know, being cast out of heaven, we know that Satan still talked with God, but so did Moses. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just wondering, is it referring, it could be referring, it seems to me, to the original casting out of Satan from heaven when he rebelled. Yeah, I, I, I don't think so in light of the context. Um, because, first of all, again, John and Revelation 12 ties it right to Michael and his angels waging war. And we know that's a reference to the 70th week of Daniel in, in Daniel chapter 12. And what's interesting is I think what's going on, for example, in Luke chapter 10, is you have work that's going out through the apostles. They have Christ's authority. And they're doing things. Remember, whoever receives you receives me, the shaluach, the apostle, the one who sent. So Christ, yes, is pillaging Satan's camp, but the ultimate downfall of Satan, his actual expulsion from heaven, where he can't go before the throne of God and say, hey, why don't you give me that Job? Why don't I, you know, do this and that to him? And God can say, go ahead or not go ahead. But at what, we're de- what we're looking at here is he no longer has access to, to heaven at all. And that's something that's unique. Um, right now, God governs his unseen realm and his seen realm. But he often does through his angels, and no demonic being can do anything to you unless God gives approval. But what we're seeing here is something unique, that in history, one day Satan and his forces are ultimately going to be expelled from the realm of God. So think of it this way. Let me put up this final, or this final slide we'll be able to get into. Think of at the cross, everything before the cross. Let's just talk about that. What happens before the cross? Jesus humbles himself and he becomes a man. It's a humiliation. He humbles himself to the point of death on the cross. He makes himself a little lower than the angels. But after the cross, everything is exaltation for him. Think about it. Jesus, after the third day, or on the third day, or no, even just think about this. He dies. Where does Jesus go right away? He's buried. The burial of Christ is exaltation. Here, here's where I get this. Turn your Bibles real quickly to Isaiah 53.9. Isaiah 53.9. I'll leave you with this slide and we'll be done. Isaiah 53.9, it says about the Messiah, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Now stop there. That's shocking. Whoever this suffering servant is, he's just assigned with wicked men. Yet what's so shocking is he was buried with a rich man. So you and I say, well, who cares whether you're buried with the rich or the wicked? In the ancient Near East, it was a big deal. (laughs) Being buried with the wealthy was a sign of exaltation. So what's so shocking is this humiliated, suffering servant in Isaiah 53.9 is going to be assigned with the wicked, yet he's buried with the wealthy? That's exaltation. Well, then the exaltation gets even higher. Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day, fulfilling Psalm 16:10. The Holy One would not see decay. Well, then Jesus ascends into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of God. God will have him sit there until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. Christ reigns over all. But then Jesus is going to reign over not just the unseen realm, but the seen realm as well. At his parousia, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now contrast this with Satan. After the death of Christ, Satan's forces are disarmed. According to Colossians 2, 14 and 15, there's no accusation that they can bring. Why? Because our debt was nailed to the cross. It was nailed there. 
So at the cross, there's no accusation that Satan can ultimately bring to us. But it's not done yet. Satan's forces will be thrown down. When? In the 70th week of Daniel. That's what we're reading about in Revelation chapter 12. But it's not done yet. Why? Because in the millennial kingdom, he's going to be bound and he won't be able to deceive the nations for a thousand years. But it's not done yet. After the thousand years, he's going to have this one little rebellion. He's going to bring everybody against Jerusalem. What does Jesus do? He calls down fire and wipes them out. And then where does Satan and all his angels go and everyone who's rejected Christ? They go to the lake of fire. So after the cross, Jesus goes up, up, and up and is exalted. Satan goes down, down, and down. And so, Eric, to your point, what we're, what we're talking about right now in Revelation 12 is this, this part of the process. Do you see what I'm saying? When the Satan and his forces are thrown down, it's happening here, and there's further descent for him to go. So that's what Revelation 12, I think, is all about. It's this part of the process. Does that make sense? Because I know originally I can't think of any verses to support it, but, I mean, he, was, he sinned against God, and God cast him out of his presence, right? Yeah, but he, he has the ability to seemingly come back. Well, look at Job 1. It says right. the sons of God would come to, before Yahweh, right. and Satan was among them. Yeah, and, and also Moses came before God, too, but not in his throne. I, I see the difference there. But Yeah, we're know. talking about in the unseen realm, yep, in the yeah. heavenly realm. So here, here's what I would leave it at. Is I would say what Revelation 12 is suggesting is Satan can't come before the throne anymore. And his time is short, so he comes down to earth. And that's why it's great tribulation. And that's, I think, the point that John is making. So does that make sense? All right, we got to cut it there for time. Thanks, everyone. God bless you.